0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris Quinn. I'm the youth pastor here at Portland Community Church, and I have the privilege to preach for us this morning. Uh, We are a church that is about inspiring people to follow Jesus, and that happens in three ways. First, we want you to follow Jesus, then we want you to be changed by Jesus, and then to be on mission with Jesus. And so we're doing kind of an individual message this morning about the 4th of July and I've begun to hear more statements from around the United States that it's time for a peaceful divorce. And that what these people are saying is that they don't want us to reach another potential civil war in our country over the issues that are dividing America right now. So it might just be better for the future of all people to have a peaceful divorce between the red states and the blue states. And I mention this not because I have an opinion about this, but it's a sobering reality to the state of our country right now, and even amongst American Christians as well. Every time I get on social media, I am reminded at how politically divided we are as a country, but as well, even within the church. And we have people within Christianity who are staunchly on the left, and we have some in Christianity who are staunchly on the right. And I've seen Christians on social media posting things that essentially say they hate or severely judge other Christians who support the candidate that they do not support, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. And they're very eager to blast them on social media and calling them not truly following Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this should not be happening amongst us. Jesus said it very clearly. The world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And so for us to act this way on social media, do you think the world knows that we are followers of Jesus? And so the question becomes, how do we work together as Christians even though we are divided politically and disagree? Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, that's that's in the NIV, but in the ESV, the English Standard Version, this is how they translate it. And I like this a, a lot better. Check this out. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so I like the way that translates because the, the unity has been brought together by Jesus. And it's our job as Christians to simply maintain what he has already brought together. And not only that, but to be eager, to really desire to do that, to make sure we do everything we can to make sure we are united no matter what is happening outside in the world. And so what that involves is living differently than the rest of the world and being united despite our differences and political opinions. Our higher goal is unity and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, instead of being right or trying to win the argument in the political sphere. So the question becomes, what do we do? How do we live in this unity that Jesus has brought together despite our political differences? Well, here's what we do. We return to our first love of Jesus instead of focusing on our political differences. So, this morning we're going to look at three ways we can return to our first love of Jesus. And I invite you now to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 7 this morning. But I just want to give you a few disclaimers before I get going into the passage this morning. First, is that if while you're listening, you start to think about specific people and you go, oh, I wish this person would hear what this is saying. I hope this person's paying attention. I really think this person needs to hear it. I want you to resist that temptation and instead go, okay, what do I need to hear? Because we need to all be attentive to God's spirit and what he might be saying to us. And this is actually something I have tendency to struggle with. I hear a message and I want, I start thinking of like five or six other people like, oh, they really need to hear this instead of stopping to go, wait, what is God trying to say to me? So resist that temptation to think about someone else and what they need to hear and worry about what God is trying to speak to you. Second, I'm not coming to you this morning as someone who has this all figured out and has this down. In fact, I have actually been deeply convicted by these ideas this week. And there are several areas. I'm looking at my own life where I'm going, I need growth and change in this area as well. So I'm not coming at you today lecturing you. Instead, I'm pleading with you to join with me as, uh, to follow Jesus in this way. And again, I'm not saying all Christians have to be uniform on our political opinions, but that our goal is to be united under Jesus. And so the book of Revelation is a really fascinating and interesting book in the New Testament. First of all, I want to get this right out of the way. The book is called Revelation, not Revelations, as I've seen it said so many times throughout my time growing up in the church. But this book was likely written by the Apostle John when he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. And he uses this form of Jewish literature called an apocalypse. Now, our culture right now are immediately going to think of a couple things. First of all, we're going to think of some sort of like massive destructive event, or we're going to think of the zombie apocalypse, some sort of world altering, changing thing. And that's not what the Jewish literature form is. Here's what the, uh, the Bible project defines apocalypse as. It's a form of literature that recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. So let me put it in a little bit of a different way. The prophet, or the writer John, utilizes very symbolic visions and dreams as a way to describe what God sees about human history and its events and then uses that to filter how we should see things happening at the end. And so this particular book that we see from John, the book of Revelation, was written to comfort the Christian churches, the early church, in a time where they were facing heavy persecution. And we don't know whether it's the Emperor Nero He did bring about a great persecution, but we don't know if this was written at that time or if it was written around the time there was the emperor Domitian who also had a great persecution against the church. But what what John is trying to do here is he's trying to bring comfort to these churches to let them know Jesus is going to win in the end over sin and evil, no matter what persecution they're enduring, and if they might feel like they are going to lose. Jesus is reminding them, "You, we are going to win. I am going to win this victory. And so this form of literature, the apocalypse, apocalypse is not meant to be this secretive, dec- secretive code that you are to decipher about the end of the world, but it's a highly symbolic way to discuss God's perspective on the events in human history and the future. And so truly, the symbolism within Revelation only makes sense when you understand where the, s- the symbolism comes from, and it basically all comes from the Old Testament, and so in this book, it starts out with some visions that happen first, and then there are these seven letters to the churches. And they're written from Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. So if you have one of those red letter Bibles out in front of you, you'll see it in red letters that because it's because that's Jesus that's talking. And so there are seven churches he's written to, and the number seven in the book of Revelation symbolizes completeness. So this letter is actually like a complete letter to the entire church in all of its history. So that includes us. This is written for us as well. There's great comfort in this book, but there's also times of great warning as we're going to see. So after the initial visions of... Revelation 1, Revelation 2 and 3 takes an interesting turn. Jesus directly speaks. He gives words of warning and comfort. And today's letter we're going to look at is a letter that is written to the church at the city of Ephesus. Now the city of Ephesus was the most important city in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which we now call Turkey. it was an extremely wealthy coastal city and port and was also the center of a lot of trade routes that were going through that area. It also had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and it was the temple of Artemis that was devoted to the Greek goddess of Artemis, who was the goddess of fertility and the harvest. And one of their cult practices at this temple was actually prostitution. So there was a lot of kind of immoral things happening there. And worship would happen there, but also commerce and business would happen around this temple. And so Christians were tempted to deny Jesus, to avoid persecution, because they didn't want to blend in with that. Or they could just join in with the practices, blend in. Instead, Jesus is calling them to faithfulness, so that they can overcome this temptation to blend in with the culture. And so you might be wondering, why are we studying this passage of all days on July 4th? Well, because I have had an increasing fear that American Christians have succumbed to this temptation, including myself, to join in with the spirit of the age and to divide ourselves over politics rather than be faithful to Jesus and to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let me make something really clear. I love living in this country and the freedoms we have as Christians to share the message of Jesus freely. I love that we are able to do that. That is unprecedented throughout the history of the church. And I am proud to be an American because of its founding principles and what the country stands for. And I'm also very thankful for the men and women who have served in order for us to continue to have this freedom and love to celebrate that we get to have this. But something I want, else I want us to understand today, our primary allegiance as followers of Jesus is to Jesus and Jesus alone, and not to any political party, platform, or candidates. And then we are to be united to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what our varying political opinions are. So we study this passage today with While we are thankful about the freedoms we have been graciously given by the Lord, but also to remember that our allegiance goes first and foremost to Jesus and what he has called called us to do and as well to each other. And to learn how to be more focused on his mission to rescue the world that he so loves as we are one in spirit. And to realize that the freedoms we have here are a gift that we can use to bring others to Jesus. So let's begin and look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So why does John address these letters to the angel at the church? Are there actual angels overseeing these churches or every single one of our churches around the world? It could be, but I don't think this is what John is talking about. What makes the most sense to me as I did my research is that John is writing in this way to keep in line with the apocalyptic genre where there is a lot of symbols. What he's really referring to are the people. He's still addressing the people in the churches and not necessarily a spiritual being that's overseeing the church. And so he says, him who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This phrase refers to Jesus being the one who holds the church all the churches together in his hands, and he sustains them, and he is also present with them. Remember, this is Jesus talking here in this letter, and he wants to remind the Ephesians of who he is while they are in the midst of this persecution that they are enduring. And so, holding the stars in his right hand refers to his authority that he's the one that's holding them together, but that he has the absolute power to accomplish anything that he wants. But then walking among the seven golden lampstands, it's his his statement of saying, I am present with my church. I am present with my people, and I am going to be the one to sustain it. So this is really important for us to remember as well as modern-day Christians, because we have to remember it is Jesus who holds our church together, who holds the whole church around the world together, and is present with every single one of us as a church in whatever we might face so it's not our programs that hold us together or our own ingenuity or business acumen, but it's Jesus who keeps his church together. And no one loves the church more than Jesus, and he will do whatever it takes to make sure that the church thrives. Verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and, pers- and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested the- those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. So, Jesus is showing he is deeply aware of everything that is going on with the Ephesian church, what they're doing, what they're up to. So, these deeds he's referring to have to do with their hard work and their perseverance. Most likely the hard work is their service that they were giving unto others to tangibly take care of their needs while they were suffering their persecution, and they continued to do it. They weren't stopping. But as well, he says that, The Ephesian church cannot tolerate wicked people. Now, sometimes what we do in Christianity is we have a tendency to, especially American Christianity, to like block off a passage and take it out of its context and make it mean something that it doesn't really mean. Okay, And sometimes people could use this as a verse to say, all right, well, I'm going to distance myself from all wicked people and stay away from them. But this is not what Jesus is talking about here. What he's talking about is... He's like referring to those who had claimed to be a- apostles, but they're really not. As you can see what he says here, and- they were testing them. The, the Ephesian church had tested these people by the fruit of their lives, whether they were faithful to Jesus's teaching. And so by doing those tests and they realized, wow, these guys are actually false. We should not be listening to them. They disregarded them as, a false, and they, as false teachers, and they were right to do so. And Jesus found this commendable. He wanted them to do this because they were holding on to the purity of the faith and what the apostles had given to the church. And they weren't allowing any sort of new teachings to come. Come in and change it. Verse three You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So Jesus then also praises them for their perseverance and how they have carried themselves during their persecution. So remember, the book of Revelation was to bring comfort to churches that were suffering persecution to show that Jesus was going to win the ultimate victory over sin and evil, no matter what persecution they were enduring and how they felt, whether they were going to lose the overall battle. So the Ephesian church had not grown weary in spite of the fact that they were facing this heavy persecution and they were not giving into the temptation to blend in with the rest of the culture, but instead were standing against it and holding firm to their faith in Jesus. So this is our first way to return to our first love is that we hold firm to Jesus. You see, I think as Christians people in our country, we have, tended to put our hope in political figures, being able to accomplish for us what only Jesus can do. Brothers and sisters, we cannot do this. Even if we find ourselves agreeing with everything a particular politician has to say, our hope should only be focused on Jesus because he is the only good and loving king who we should put our trust in. Every single political figure will fail us at some point because they are human. And remember, it's Jesus who is the one who is holding the church together. He's holding us together, and he is holding the whole church around the world together. So we must also hold firm to him because he will not let us go. Nothing can separate us from his love. Jesus loves and cares for his church more than we ever Could so he will make sure to help it survive if we simply hold on to him and trust in him. We trust that his word is true, is the truth, and not whatever our culture says is the truth or whatever it says it isn't the truth. We work hard for God's glory and we persevere when even when we face persecution because he will help us endure and be by our side through it. Verse four. Yet this I hold. Yet yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So, based on Jesus' praise of this church, it's now a surprise that he will rebuke, rebuke them here. And for what he rebukes them for? He's upset at them for forsaking the love that you had at first. Well, what what does he mean by that? I listened to a podcast recently by a guy named Dr. Michael Heiser, and this is actually what kind of sparked the idea for me about this sermon this morning. But he's a friend of the Bible Project, which is based here in Portland, and Michael Heiser has his doctorate in the Hebrew language, so he is pretty crazy smart. And his most recent podcast series has been about how the book of Revelation, and in particular the author John, uses the symbolism of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And that's how we can understand what Revelation is talking about when we understand the symbolism from the Old Testament. And so in the episode where he talked about this passage, he mentioned what is likely going on here is that Jesus is saying to this church by forsaking their first love that they had abandoned the mission. You see, in other words, forsaking our love, our first love of Jesus is abandoning the mission that he had laid out for us. You see, our, as Westerners, our immediate attention falls on the word love because we're sort of obsessed with romantic love and we, we idolize it. But the de- definition and notion of love is in our culture runs counter to what the Bible defines it as. In our culture, love is this intense, fleeting, emotional response that we are sometimes not even totally in control of. You see, we can fall out of love just as easily as we fall in love with someone within that kind of mindset. So this is not what Jesus is referring to here. Instead, love in the Bible is accompanied by action for the better of somebody else. You see, Jesus showed his love by dying on our behalf on the cross when we least deserved to receive that gift so that we could be saved and we could know God. And so our love, in a way, means that there must be an accompanying action because of what God has done. Verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So Jesus then encourages the Ephesians to take stock at their spiritual condition and how far they have fallen. See, often in our culture, we are taught to kind of push away negative feelings. But a thoughtful consideration of our faults and our sins like this actually can be really helpful and beneficial. When we take stock and inventory of our spiritual health and are convicted by God about where we are at, Jesus can use that as an opportunity for growth and change in our lives. But the key is that once we have recognized the wrong we have done is to repent as Jesus says here. Now let me make sure I define what repentance is for you. Repentance is not just feeling bad about things we have done, but it's a turning away from those things and a commitment to live differently, to have our mind and our allegiance, who is in charge of our life, completely changed. And we're saying, I'm going where Jesus is going. And so Jesus says to repent of this sin and to do the things that they did at first. So since Jesus is referring to them having abandoned the mission in terms of forsaking their first love— It means that it's time to do the things that they did at first would be to get back on the mission. So what is the mission that Jesus has laid out for us? He made this very clear. Go make disciples of all nations. Be my witnesses wherever you go, all the way to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is also very clear about what will happen if they don't repent. He will remove their lampstand. Now this is symbolic, so we need to understand what he means by this. The lampstands refer to the power of the Spirit and shining a light to the world about who God is. So to have that lampstand removed would basically mean to remove the power of the Spirit from the church and its ability to be a witness to the world about Jesus and his gospel. So the question should always, always arise then if a that if a church is failing and if it's not thriving, is it possible that it has abandoned the mission of Jesus that he laid out before them and he has removed the power of the Spirit from them? It's kind of a scary question, but it's really important for us to ask, to consider how far a church may have fallen. And so what, what a church can always do is repent. It's always available to repent, as it says, and do the things that Christ commanded us to do at first. And so no matter how biblically faithful a church might be, like the Ephesians were, if a church abandons its mission of making disciples of all nations and focuses on other things, like our political differences, then they begin to lose the power of the Holy Spirit working among them. Verse 6, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus is affirming them here, and he's making sure to encourage them. He's doing, you know, what we might call in some business world or practices an affirmation sandwich, right? So you start one piece of bread as encouraging someone. Then you give them the middle where you're kind of telling them something they need to work on, and then you close it out with another piece of affirmation. It actually does work. I've I've seen it work really well, but this is what Jesus is doing here. So he's encouraging them. He says, you have hated the work of the Nicolaitans, whose work Jesus also hates. And it's not totally clear from history who the Nicolaitans were, what they believed, and what they taught. But it's very possible that they taught that Christians could participate in the cult worship, blend with the culture at the temple of Artemis, along with worshiping Jesus, and so they were deceiving people to go away from the truth of Jesus. And regardless, whatever it is that they taught, it was a departure from the faith that Jesus gave to the apostles. So this is a good thing that the church did not like the Nicolaitans. They recognized that they were false. And so one of the things that Jesus gave to his apostles is our second way to return to our first love of Jesus, is that we join Jesus on his mission. I think Christians can tend in our country to be more known for their political opinions than they are about carrying about carrying out the mission of Jesus. So I think it's fair that we all ask ourselves a couple of questions. Am I more known for my political opinions or that I am a follower of Jesus and show his love to others in our mission with him? See, if I truly love Jesus, I had to ask myself this question over and over again. If I truly love Jesus, why don't I do the things he did to do the things that we did at first? You see, questions like these don't have to lead us to shame, to feel terrible, but to convict us and to lead us to do what Jesus recommended, to repent, to turn away from those things, from being overly focused on the political realm, and instead devote ourselves fully to joining Jesus on his mission. And so you might be asking yourself, how, how do I do that? How do I join Jesus on his mission? Where do I even begin? Well, see, I went to a discipleship conference in Idaho a couple of months ago, and here was their suggestion. I loved how they phrased this. Be something before you do something. Now, let me, let me explain this a little bit. See, if you're at a loss for how to make disciples like another follower of Jesus and be a witness for Jesus, but you see what I'm saying and you say, I agree. It's all, for all Christians to be on mission with Jesus, to share the love of Jesus everywhere we go. You can make your first step by simply saying, Man, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to disciple someone, so I need to be discipled. That's the first step. That's what they mean. And so here's another piece of advice from that conference. We cannot lead people into something that we are not ourselves. So if we look at our, take inventory of ourselves and go, wow, I really fall short of this whole being a disciple and joining Jesus on his mission. The first and most easy step is to say, okay, I want to be discipled. I want to learn. I want to grow. And I promise you, come to us and we will make sure to connect you with someone who will disciple you and teach you how to join Jesus on his mission. But I also want you to be comforted by this fact. When you join Jesus on this mission, you have so much with you. You have the promises of God to be with you and to be present with you in it. You don't have to do it alone. You have the church, but you also have the God who made you and loves you by your side to accomplish this mission. Verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. So overall, what's happening in this book, this is a warning to heed the words that are said in this prophecy. This phrase here, whoever has ears, let them hear. And it's a statement, it's a personal challenge, and it comes from Old Testament prophets. Now, see, you have to understand something about biblical terms. When they teach you something in the biblical culture and mindset, it means, okay, if I hear this teaching, that means I have to then do it. But when an Old Testament prophet would use this phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear, it was after they had given a very plain and clear prophetic warning to Israel and said, you, your behavior is warranted for judgment, that God's going to bring judgment on you. And Israel wouldn't listen. So then they would shift gears and move to more of a symbolic means of communication like these apocalypses and move into like parables. And so what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to grab the attention of true believers who will understand what he means and seek to make a change as a result. So this was to enlighten believers, but as well to make a clear delineation between believers and those who don't believe. Because the reality was then and is today as well that people within the church can become compromised and blend in with the rest of the culture and become spiritually lethargic. And so Jesus is seeking to wake people up within these letters. So we want to ask ourselves, are we going to do the same And he says, for the one who is victorious, who stands firm in the times of trials and persecution and does not give in to the temptation to blend with the culture, Jesus will give them the right to eat from the tree of life. To be able to enter into the paradise of God, one must be totally washed clean of their sin and be granted forgiveness by God because of their sin. Which happens through placing your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. That his death on the cross was sufficient to pay the debt of our sin to God and make us new through his spirit when we put our faith in him. And so this phrase about being victorious, it refers to the need to repent of forsaking our first love and then returning to the things we did at first and to get back on mission with Jesus. And so those who do that will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus because they will reveal that they are true followers of Jesus. But if you don't understand or don't know what to do and you want to understand what we've been talking about this morning, here is our third way to return to our first love, is that you ask the Lord for the ears to understand what he is saying. See, there are probably some of you in here this morning or online with us who might think, I'm not speaking to you at all, that you just, something's just not clicking, you're not understanding. But there may be a curiosity in you hearing about this Jesus who loves us and made us and puts people on mission to rescue the world that he loves. And you want to know more. And so you hear that phrase, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And you're left sort of confused because you don't understand. Let me set you on a journey to understand and suggest that you must simply ask to hear. That's a prayer that the Lord wants to answer when people genuinely come to him and say, Lord, I want to hear. I don't understand this, but I want, to, I want to hear. This is not some sort of deterministic, they were always meant to never hear, they were always meant to never hear, to understand or to not understand. You can ask any time to understand. But even for those of us who do understand, it's a great comfort to know that God wants to make his will known to us. But it's more often that we have cluttered up our own minds so that we can't hear him. I went on a prayer walk on a nature trail toward the coast a couple months ago, and I was getting really frustrated because I felt like I I wasn't hearing from God in the timeline that I wanted to hear. And when I finally felt like I was hearing him, it was after about an hour, maybe even a little bit longer, where I was just kind of dumping my thoughts and just, like, letting it all out before God, what I was thinking and what I was feeling— And it was once I had kind of gotten all of that out and let my mind and my heart calm down (laughs) that I was able to finally be attentive to to hear what God was trying to say to me. You see, my mind had gotten cluttered. I had allowed for so many other things to take up the space in my head that I had a hard time hearing. So I want you to think about this. If you want to hear what the Lord is trying to say to you, take some time, make space to hear the Lord after you— and ask yourself, how can I do that? How can I make time? What do I need to move around so that I can make space to hear from the Lord? And I want you to understand, God is faithful and he wants you to understand these things. This is his will. He wants all people to be saved. He doesn't desire for anyone to be separated from him, but we must ask for him to open up our spiritual ears to hear it. And so in closing, as a result of this passage we've studied this morning, I think there are a few other questions We all need to think about. If we were to face or will face major persecution in America like the early church did, and especially the church at Ephesus, is our first impulse to try and win the argument, to get revenge, or to try and win our opponent's soul? You see, for most of us, if we're honest, and this is something I struggle with, it's probably to try and win the argument rather than win their soul to show them the love of Jesus. So we've got to repent of this and focus on leading people to Jesus rather than trying to win the argument. But I want us to think about this as well. Do we want the way we present our political views to be the thing that hinders someone from following Jesus? Does how we write about our political opinions on social media reflect the character of Jesus Or does it reflect the character of the tense political age that we're living in? And I'm most certainly not saying we can't post political opinions on social media, but always be asking the question, is the way I'm doing it representing Jesus? Remember, our unity and love for one another will show the world that we are truly followers of Jesus. So post your opinions in mind, knowing that you have brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with you. But that we are called to focus on something different, to hold us all together, to unite us as followers of Jesus in joining with Jesus on his mission to rescue the world. So how can you reach across the political aisle with someone you disagree with and show them the love of Jesus? Or show unity with a brother or sister in Christ you disagree with on political things? What is the first step you can take in joining Jesus and ma- making disciples of all nations? And how can you hold fast to Jesus rather than your political heroes? And so let's remember, we need to return to our first love of Jesus instead of focusing on our political differences. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your great love for us. You are so good. We pray that we would hear your great word. And Jesus, that you would allow for us to know your great love. And Jesus, to let that love influence how we love others. Jesus, I am so thankful that we get to speak your word freely in this country. God, that we have a freedom that is unprecedented throughout the history of the church. God, I pray we would take advantage of that. We would share the gospel with people. But God, we would do it in a way that reflects you. God, that we would also share our political opinions in a way that reflects you and to make you known and famous around the world. So God, we love you and we thank you that you open up this opportunity for us because you love us and made us for a purpose. We pray this in your name. Amen.